Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, in just a couple of minutes, we'll jump into a fascinating topic for today. But uh, right now, a response to a program from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we uh, heard our interview again with Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal on her work, West, a translation. Uh, it's a linked collection of poems that responds to a Chinese elegy carved into the walls of Angel Island Immigration Station, where Chinese migrants to the United States were detained. And got this email from John, um, who uh, is responding. Uh, just a couple of notes. We won't be able to read all of the email because it's very lengthy. We only have a certain amount of time. And I've changed a couple of words here because the original words uh, in reference to Paisley Rectile I felt were inappropriate. Here's a part of John's email. Hi, Tom. From time to time, I hear some person claim that all of America was built by black slaves. And this time it was the railroads and the White House. Wrong. One, the black slaves only built the southern pre-Civil War railroads. They built them for secessionist South only. The southerners hated so hated the North that they built their railroads to British specs, and they didn't even have the same track and gauge as the North. In other words, that rail system was completely useless to the rest of us. Two, the southern rail system was completely destroyed in the war. We even beat the rails, uh, bent the rails so the South could not reuse any. Three, no slaves of any color or race worked on any part of the system the North used after the war and no slaves worked on anything. So we do not owe a debt to all ex-slaves for building a rail system with which the South fought their war with the anti-slavery North. Also, some small number of slaves helped out with the Southern War effort. And so far as the White House is concerned, just because some laborers were rented to the government to help build the White House, carry heavy loads, or move dig dirt doesn't mean in any way doesn't in any way imply that black slaves built the White House. What PC nonsense. Yes, the pre-Civil War government used some slaves to do some work on the White House. They first tried to get European immigrants, laborers, and skilled artisans or craftsmen, but slave architects, slave plumbers, slave pipe uh, uh, fitters, slave glaziers, slave city planners. Um, I could go on and on, but you get the point. By that, uh, by that person's uh, viewpoint, if I carried wood or stone and uh, dug the hole to build your home, then I must have built the entire thing myself, and I think you would differ. One last word to consider. Your guest would have you and me believe that any wrong can never be corrected, and therefore we white folks owe the descendants of black slaves everything, and I mean everything. By that reasoning, all those religious wars from hundreds of uh, not over a thousand years ago that the Muslims are currently fighting are justified because you can never right a wrong. By that same PC reasoning, the blacks now owe us white folks everything on earth because blacks in Africa used to buy white slaves from my ancestors, the Vikings, which is an old Norse word meaning pirates. You should read up on slavery. You would learn that all cultures have had slaves, and there are still slaves in places like Africa, Asia, and the Indian subcontinent. Did I mention slavery is still going on in all Muslim countries? Your guest seems to be offended only when a white person enslaves a black person, not the other way around. Therefore, she is racist. I'll skip now to the end. How about asking some tough questions next time? Slavery used to be in all countries, uh, kingdoms, etc., is now banned in white countries, but in black, Muslim, Asian, etc. countries still practiced lots of slavery in South America. And on top of that, slaves in the USA were far better treated than in other countries as they were so expensive. Thanks for the discussion show. And he signs it, John Wolfe. Uh, so keep the comments coming uh, in response to uh, West a Translation or in response to John's comments. You can do that at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Thank you.
Welcome now to our Access Utah program. In her 20s, Belle de Costa Green is hired by J.P. Morgan to curate a collection of rare manuscripts, books, and artwork for his newly built Pierpont Morgan Library. Belle becomes a fixture in New York City society, one of the most powerful people in the art and book world. Known for her impeccable taste and shrewd negotiating for critical works as she helps create a world-class collection. But Belle has a secret, one she must protect at all costs. She was born not Belle de Costa Green, but Belle Marion Greener. She's the daughter of Richard Greener, the first black graduate of Harvard and a well-known advocate for equality. Belle's complexion isn't dark because of her alleged Portuguese heritage, the lesser passes white. Her complexion is dark because she is African-American. The Personal Librarian is a new historical novel, tells the story of an extraordinary woman famous for her intellect, style, and wit, and uh, shares the lengths she must go to for the protection of her family and her legacy to preserve her carefully crafted white identity in the racist world in which she lives. Uh, the authors of this book are Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray, and uh, Marie Benedict will join us for the hour. She's a lawyer with more than 10 years' experience as a litigator, graduate of Boston College and Boston University School of Law, and she's the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of The Only Woman in the Room, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, Carnegie's Maid, The Under, Another Einstein, and Lady Clementine. All have been translated into multiple languages. She lives in Pittsburgh with her family. And we welcome in uh, Marie Benedict. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm looking forward to talking about the book with you. Yeah, very, very interesting story, very interesting uh, book. Um, so thanks for sharing this. Uh, first of all, um, how did you encounter the story? It's a fascinating story. Oh, gosh. Um, well, as you mentioned, I was a lawyer in New York City for over a decade, and the law wasn't my sort of initial passion. Um, I loved history. And um, a couple years into my law career, I knew it wasn't for me. And so I started to kind of escape from my long law days into the various cultural institutions of New York City. And I fell in love with the Morgan Library. Um, for listeners who've never been there, it's this jewel box of a library in New York City that J.P. Morgan built to, in the early 1900s to house his rare and priceless manuscript collection. Um, and one day when I happened to be there, a docent had finished up a tour next to me, and she mentioned that this astonishing library, beautiful, with, you know, really a world-class collection, had not been built alone by J.P. Morgan, that in fact, when he uh, created, uh, finished the library itself in New York City, he hired a woman to run it alongside him. And she told me her name, Belda Costa Green, um, and mentioned, you know, that throughout the, the four decades that she ran the institution, she became, as you mentioned, one of the most powerful people in the art world. And I just thought, this is such a remarkable story. You know, we're talking about early 1900s into the 1940s, a time period during a lot of which women didn't even have the right to vote. And here we had a really strong woman rising up and becoming really incredibly prominent in her profession. And over the years, as I switched from lawyering to writing, I kind of had her name on my list of um, remarkable historical women I wanted to write about. And the story kind of went from there. Very, very interesting. Um, and uh, understand, um, usually right alone, right? In this case, you reached out I for a, for a co-author. Why? Well, you know, as as with many of the women I write about, um, 
I, you know, I kind of dip into the research over the years as I'm considering turning specifically to their story. And in the years after I found Balance switched um, to writing exclusively, I, I started to dig into the research about her, which was coming more to the forefront in those years. Um, and I learned that her story was remarkable not only because she was uh, a powerful woman at a time when very few women had wielded any sort of power, I learned that she actually was passing as white, that she was came from a prominent black family um, Her mother, on her mother's side. She came from a, a many generations um, of this very prominent, affluent, well-educated uh, community of color in Washington, D.C. Um, and on her father's side, her father was actually the then quite well-known um, activist, lawyer, first black graduate of Harvard, um, a man by the name of Richard T. Greener. And, you know, I just thought it was so astonishing that here's this woman who came from this really unique, prominent um, black family, at, you know, at a time that really rose up at a time in the years after the Civil War when Reconstruction was on the rise. Um, and then as the years progressed and Bell was born, um, segregation really became the law of the land. And I thought, what what a fascinating, important, timely story um, about a woman who was not only remarkable as this, you know, force in the world of um art and books, but also had to really suppress her, her real identity as a black woman who came from this cultured, educated community, but to, um, you know, to really rise up so to pass as white so that she could actually wield this power. And once I learned all of that about her, I really realized that I not only needed but wanted to have a partner in writing Belle's story. Um, I wanted to have a partner of color. Um, and at, around that time, I read a wonderful book by my co-author, who wishes she could be here today, but she's traveling. Um, her name is Victoria Christopher Murray, and she wrote a wonderful book called Stand Your Ground, which really explored the the very... Oh, painful, troubling um, issue of the shooting of young black men in our country. And she explored it from the perspective of the women, the mother of the young black boy and the wife of the police officer who had shot him. And after I read this book, I just thought, oh, my gosh, if she would ever be willing to, to consider writing the story of Belle Costa Green with me, um, it would just be, I, I felt like at the time it would be such a wonderful pairing for us. Um, and the more I got to know Victoria, I reached out to her. She she was interested. Um, we really realized that it was it was just a perfect partnership to tell Belle's story. Now, understand that uh, Belle de Costa Green burned her papers, uh, or, mm-hmm. or instructed they be. I guess she burned it, and then and then hoped that her friends would burn anything uh, else. Uh, I guess this is to protect her secret. Is that why she did that? Yeah. I- yeah, absolutely. You know, so when, when Belle, I think it's important to put a little bit of her time period in history in the historical context to understand why she would have done that. Um, you know, as I mentioned, Belle was born, you know, when her, it was still sort of the, the tail end of the era of Reconstruction after the Civil War. Her father, as I mentioned, he had been the first black graduate of Harvard. He was a professor at um, at the brief period of time when the University of South Carolina was integrated. Um, And in the the years immediately following, before and following Bell's birth, um, she was actually born in um, 1879, even though she said at various times she was born later. Um, 
it became clear to her mother and only very much later to her father that this equality that her father um, and mother were hoping for, that her father actually toured the, co- toured the country and advocated for and, and spoke about, was eroding. And that in place of the Civil Rights Act of 1875 and the, the equality that, that so many people were advocating for after the Civil War, um, in its place was going to be the, the law of segregation that was going to become institutionalized. And her mother understood um, or believed that that, that that was more possible than her father. Her father still wanted to keep fighting for equality. And they moved to New York City um, in... Uh, it was like the, around late 1800s, early 1900s, her father had taken a job to run the project to build the, U- uh, the Ulysses S. Grant Memorial in um, New York City. And bit by bit, her mother decided that the children and her should um, live as white. They were very fair. Um, they could pass. And this was a time period in New York City when there was really a flood of immigration from the Mediterranean countries. And that's actually how they looked. They looked quite Mediterranean. Um, her father opposed this. Um, and as the, the years progressed, um, that actually caused a, a, a permanent divide between her parents and her parents um their marriage broke up. Her father left the family, and the family at that point changed their last name from Greener to Green and lived exclusively as white people. Um, so in the years that followed, Belle's going to college. She's uh, serving as a librarian in Princeton. She becomes recruited by J.P. Morgan to run his library. All of those things would have only been possible for her as a white person, not as a black person, um, even though it may not have been formalized in the laws in New York at that time. It, it was fast becoming the practice, really, of, of the land. And um, so t- to have any sort of equality, um, they they were their mother really felt that they needed to live as white, and that's what they chose to do. So in the years that followed, in the decades in which Bell became more and more powerful, more part of the not only the New York social scene, but the really the worldwide art scene, um, she could only have held that position and brought the Morgan Library up to the position of prominence that it held, she felt, as a white person. Um, our country was still very segregated at the time of her death in 1950. Um, so at the, at the end of her life, she went about burning all of her personal papers. I think we don't know this because, of course, she burned the papers that might have reflected this decision. But um, we, Victoria and I kind of believe that she did that because she didn't know what was going to happen in the future, that there might be more of a promise of actual equality. And she was fearful that the legacy that she built up, um, she really had brought the, the Morgan Library to such a position of prominence in the world, um, might be undermined if people learned that she was actually a black woman. And so she burned her personal papers. She asked her friends and family to burn theirs. And the only person who that we know of, there might be some letters and shoeboxes out there, but the only person that we know of who did not was the man who became um, her most prominent romantic partner, a man by the name of Bernard Berenson. He was a very prominent um, art expert and historian, and he kept all of those letters um, in his villa, in Italy, where they remain today. Um, and those letters uh, really shine probably the best light into sort of her personal life at that, uh, during this, the 19, early 1900s to the 1940s. But he, at least as far as we know, did not know for certain that she was passing. And so that wasn't the topic of conversation in those letters.
Uh, so uh, letters burned, you know, you have uh, Burnson's letters, etc. But uh, so, so how do you write about her? <laughs> where do you where do you how go? How do we write a great question? Yeah. You know, with Bell, um, Victoria and I did what I we we began sort of using the method that I often use in my novels. You know, that's what I do. I write exclusively about. Um, historical women who've left us this rich, broad legacy, but about whom we might be unaware. You know, Hedy Lamarr is a great example. She was the kind of the the star of uh, my book, The Only Woman in the Room. You know, we know her as a 1940s, 50s, 30s um, golden age of Hollywood actress, but she was actually an inventor, an invent and an invention she made to help in the war effort. Ultimately, turned into Wi-Fi. So when we use Wi-Fi today. We really are beholden to Hedy Lamar, but very few people actually know that. So that's kind of um, the the standard by which I, I choose women. Um, and, and this is no exception, but I left a huge legacy. Most people have never heard of her. She was extremely well-known during her lifetime. But we have a paucity of, of original source materials about her, and that's really where I love to go when I'm writing about these women. I love letters, journals. And that sort of thing. And, of course, most of those are gone. There is still her professional correspondence. There's correspondence that people from her time period wrote about her. And there are the letters from Bernard Berenson. But but more than that, in Bell's case, because she was fairly well-known during her lifetime, there's a lot of newspaper articles about her. Um, there's biographies about about her that were written by a wonderful woman, um, Heidi Artizoni. She wrote An Illuminated Life. Um, she was able to go um, to the villa where the letters still reside and build a wonderful biography based on it. That was actually something um, my partner and I were planning on doing, but the pandemic prevented our travel to Italy to look at those letters ourselves. Um, and really from all of those sources is how we kind of cobbled together what we think of as our Bell de Costa Green, right? We, we are, um, this book, like all my books, is really based on the historical record, whether it's my character's historical record or the larger historical record. Um, but it's very much our version of that, of that particular woman. Um, and in, in the case of Bell de Costa Green, partnering with Victoria, um, and, and the insights that, that we kind of garnered together made this a really unique experience. Um, you know, Victoria, I wish she was here to talk about it, but, um, Victoria had people in her own family who passed. Um, Victoria's, um, an African American woman and, um, she, her grandmother passed as white for convenience, not as a lifestyle. She knows lots of, um, other friends and family members who, who knew people that passed. So we had a rich wealth of anecdotal information from Victoria about what it might have been like to pass during this time period. And we also did independent research from journals and letters from people from that time period who passed. Um, and sort of using all of that, we extrapolated what it might have been like to be Belle de Costa Green. Let's take a break, come back, talk about that. Um, the book is The Personal Librarian. It's a novel, historical novel, uh, based on uh, the real-life uh, person uh, who was known as Belle da Costa Green, um, who was really, uh, or originally had uh, had been, uh, Belle Marion Greener, daughter of Richard Greener, the first black graduate of Harvard, well-known advocate for equality. And she became the personal librarian to J.P. Morgan and uh, created quite a legacy there. Uh, we're talking with one of the authors, Marie Benedict. The other author, Victoria Christopher Murray, is uh, traveling uh, right now. That book is out and available now. We'll have more following this break. 
Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Stokes Nature Center Canyon Jams, presenting Stillhouse Junkies August 28th at 7 p.m., located at Von Baer Park in Providence. Information at loganature.org slash canyonjams. This is Science by the Slice. Earth's carbon is stored in plants and animals, the atmosphere, and the soil. And there's more carbon in soil than in plants, animals, and the atmosphere combined. Soil microbial respiration, that is, carbon dioxide release, plays a key role in global carbon cycling, says USU ecologist Bonnie Waring. She's created synthetic soil to study how long carbon remains in the soil and how much of it returns to the atmosphere. Her findings will aid prediction of how climate change affects soil and influences the carbon cycle. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Personal Librarian is a new historical novel. It's about J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, Belle da Costa Green, the black American woman who is forced to hide her true identity and passes white in order to leave a lasting legacy that enriched our nation. Uh, the writers are New York Times bestselling author Marie Benedict and acclaimed author Victoria Christopher Murray. And Marie Benedict is uh, joining us for the hour. I want to talk about the decision and what it represented of, of Belle Costa Green's mother. So Belle Costa Green is born, I guess, you know, during Reconstruction, but the nation at that time is descending into the Jim Crow era. And uh, it's it's interesting, it's tragic, isn't it? And, and it's an example of the whole nation, and certainly black families, right, Mary Benedict, that... Uh, the, the the father is very idealistic, and he's fighting for civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. And we can understand that, and and you know, and pull for him. Um, the, the tragic that the mother is looking back, I think, more clear-eyed about things, right? And she says, "Well, if we're going to have, if our daughters are going to have a, a, a chance, so we're going to pass as white." That's exactly right. Yeah, and and as you described, it's tragic. I mean. That's, you know, for, for Victoria and I, that was, was really the crux of the novel. Um, and that decision, which, um, which I'll talk about a little bit more in detail, um, it really resonates throughout every page of the book. You know, when, when Belle grew up, you know, she, she was born in um, Washington, D.C. after their, she and her mother and father left the University of South Carolina. I think I mentioned her father had been a professor there during this brief period of integration, and then they were basically driven out because the tide had turned, um, as you mentioned. And, you know, she lived sort of in this enclave, this wonderful enclave of her mother's family, the Fleet family. Um, they were, as I mentioned earlier, this very cultured, educated family. Um, the, the family members were named after, they were very musical. The family members were named after Mozart, uh, well, that was one of her uncles, Bellini. Um, and because of her father's work, they ultimately moved to New York City. And, you know, that period when her mother had lived in um, with her father in uh, South Carolina was really the first time her mother would have gone into the Deep South. You know, she had been born free. Um, her family had been free for generations. And it was eye-opening to her. And yet, there was this, as you mentioned, this moment of promise. 
when um, Richard Greener and uh, Genevieve Fleet, that was Belle's mother, were there, um, you know, her father was one of the first black professors. He taught multiple um, uh, disciplines. He became the librarian of the institution. He got his law degree. They were so hopeful that the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which really promised equality and all the other constitutional amendments and legislations, really would have led to a long um, sort of foundation upon which our country could build really true equality for everybody. Um, they themselves saw firsthand the beginning of the erosion, and they retreated to Washington, D.C., um, and as I mentioned, ended up in New York. And, and, you know, I think they were hopeful that in New York, maybe the, the, the beginning of, you know, sort of Jim Crow that they were seeing in the South wasn't going to happen in the North. And true, it wasn't as um, distinct during that time period, but Genevieve Fleet could see the writing on the wall. And like many mothers, um, she wanted the best for her children. She wanted her, t- her children not to be white. That's never what she would have advocated for them. Um, they had this wonderful, rich cultural tradition and heritage. And she, just Richard T. Greener, you know, he was going around the country speaking about not just equality, but about the promise of living as your true, authentic self. Um, she never wanted really her children to to, to pass just to be white. She wanted her children and their family to pass because she thought it was the only opportunity for her children to be equal and to be safe, I think. Um, you know, during this time period, we don't talk about it a lot, um, and we're only recently now starting to, to see um, and understand the ramifications of th- things like the Tulsa Massacre. Um, but there were lynchings. There were things like the Tulsa Massacre ha- happening in many cities. And Genevieve and Richard would have been very aware of that. Um, their children would have been very aware of that. But Richard, as you mentioned, was an idealist. He wanted and believed in the fight for equality. And, and of course, ultimately, we needed that as, as a country and um, as people. But Genevieve was, you know, working on the day-to-day lives of her children, and she just couldn't see a safe future for them living as living as their true selves. And it, it's terribly tragic when you think about it, to think that they would have had to suppress their true identities, um, their heritage, cut off co- connection with their families. You know, one of the things that Victoria and I were really determined to do was to explore the, the terrible nature of the sacrifice of passing. And what that would do, not just to Belle, but her, her four siblings, her mother, um, and people like them. Y- yes, they ended up living a, a much more affluent life, and in Belle's case, a celebrity life. But there was so much tragedy underlying that, so much sacrifice. You know, they couldn't see um, their family. Because if they happened to have uh, an aunt or an uncle come to visit them in their all-white neighborhood, that could have revealed the fact that they were actually people of color. Belle couldn't get married and have a family of her own because if she had a child that was darker in complexion than than she was, then that could reveal their true identities. They could be walking down the streets of New York and run into someone who knew them as a black family, and that their lives were walking on a tightrope. Um, and, you know, the nature of the sacrifice, the, the terrible weight of passing is something that um, Victoria and I were really determined to explore. Um, passing is often um, derided, um, and, and understandably so in certain contexts. But in this particular context, there was so much um, suffering that went along with the passing, and yet they felt like it was the only course for their family. 
one of the one of the principal costs uh, is uh, Bell can't acknowledge her father, right? Because he's a exactly he's a famous uh, activist. <laughs> he's known as an African American. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean for Bell that was particularly um, difficult. You know, she was. Uh, I think of all the siblings, probably we think we don't know for sure, but in our version of Bell, particularly close with her father. I mean, she followed in his footsteps. He had been a librarian at the University of South Carolina. That's what she became. He had a love of art and rare books and really instilled that in her. Um, and that became her, her history. Um, so there was, there was so much between them, and yet they couldn't, they couldn't talk. They couldn't connect because he was well-known. He was famous. And if people knew, that would be the one true... Uh, the one real way their um, their identities could be exposed is by establishing that link between their family and Richard Greener. What did obviously this you know was a, was a the, the mother's decision was a shock to the father right and it had ramifications in the yeah. family. Do we do we know uh, what Richard Greener thought? Did he ever write about this uh, the decision? Because this is this is a, in his eyes, I'm sure, a betrayal, right? Oh, absolutely, and, and it was it was like I think the one thing that he could not overcome in his relationship with his wife. Um, we, we don't have, I haven't, we haven't been able to find um, specific, uh, we don't have any correspondence, for example, between Belle and her father. Um, there are some letters that have been discovered between Richard and other family members after the fact, um, referring not to his um, feelings specifically on their decision, but uh, about the rift between them, about how it was unconscionable and unpardonable. Um, so absolutely he saw it as a betrayal, not not just of, of their family, but of everything that he stood for, everything he was fighting for, and quite often, pro- quite honestly, probably what Genevieve fought for at the beginning of their marriage. You know, when she decided to marry Richard, she knew she was marrying um, an advocate for equality. And when she went down to the University of South Carolina at his side, she was standing for that equality in her own way. Victoria and I kind of see her as an activist behind the scenes, of course, because that was probably all that would have been permitted to her during that time period, but fully believing in everything he was fighting for. And, uh, you know, another tragedy of this time period is that that sort of terrible erosion um, uh, on that possibility, on that hope that she experienced in so many, of course, as well, um, until she just couldn't see that as a, as a way forward for her, for her children. If you just joined us, we're talking with Marie Benedict. She's one of the authors of The Personal Librarian. It's a historical novel. The other author, Victoria Christopher Marie, is traveling and is not joining us today. Um, it's the story of J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, Belle DaCosta Green, a black American woman who was forced to uh, hide her true identity, passes white, in order to uh, gain the opportunities that she had. Uh, that's where I want to go next. So uh, maybe take us from uh, when she's 16, when mm-hmm. the mother decides we're going to pass, uh, up and uh, to sure. uh, how she meets uh, J.P. Morgan and gets this uh, job. Uh, one one thing that I guess the mother decides to do is we're going to add the Costa. We're, uh, and and mm-hmm. Portuguese heritage is a way we're going to explain why we're uh, dark-complected. Yeah, I mean, what's real? One of the things that's interesting in this time period, as you mentioned, Belle's in her later teen years. Um, she's she has some, uh, some older siblings, some younger siblings, so they're kind of at all at different stages in their education. None are none are out in the world. 
um, they're all, um, you know, still kind of beholden to the to their mother as, as sort of the family matriarch. Um, and DaCosta is added only to two of the siblings' names, to Russell, her only brother, and to Bell's. And the reason that, that they became Russell and Belle DaCosta Green, whereas Louise and Ethel and Teddy are just Louise Green, um, is because Russell and Belle are the darkest complected. Um, the, uh, some of the other siblings are extremely fair. Um, in fact, Teddy, the youngest, her name was Theodore, um, but she went by Teddy, um, is so fair that she's, I, I think, blonde. Um, so the, Genevieve, the mother, needed an explanation for Russell and, um, and Belle once they entered the world. And Portuguese was the heritage she selected, and there was a very distinct reason for that. First of all, it explained a Mediterranean complexion, as I mentioned earlier. But also, you know, there was this wave of immigration from Italy and Greece, and there was a lot of discrimination against those immigrants. Um, Genevieve wanted to separate her children from that discrimination as well. And there wasn't sort of that negative connotation and discrimination against um, Portuguese immigrants. And so that's why she gave them that um, invented heritage. Um, Belle, um, we don't know the exact nature of her college education. We do know she went to teacher's college for a while. She went to some summer, a summer seminar at Amherst College in librarian skills. There was no formal education to become a librarian during that time period. It was more of an apprenticeship situation. And so she went to Princeton University Library, and um, and really that's that was really the heart of her studies to become a librarian. Um, she she really mastered the the whole uh, the whole nature of the library, but she had a special affinity and gift for their rare and priceless manuscripts. They had an excellent collection there. Um, they kind of had informal seminars led by various experts, and she became very close with one of their. I would call him a librarian, but he had other jobs. He was uh, he was a big donator to the library. Um, Junius Morgan. Um, he was J.P. Morgan's nephew. He was very involved at the Princeton Library, um, and he had donated a collection of um, rare and priceless manuscripts or books, actually, um, early printed books um, by um, uh, uh, Virgil. They called them the Virgils, and um, Bell and Junius formed a friendship. And um, in 1905-ish, I'd say, um, six, J.P.'s library, the Morgan Library, as um, today it's a much larger campus than it stood at that time, but his, his personal library, which was next door to his home in New York City, it was about to be completed. Now, just a little context, J.P. at this time was in, in the later years of his career. Um, you know, he was a famous uh, banker, industrialist, financier, but he was also very politically involved in the country. In the later years of his life, he became a huge collector. His favorite and uh, most, I mean, the focal point of his collection were these rare and priceless books, but he also had huge art collections, ceramics, and he didn't have a home that could house all these collections. So, you know, he had a, a huge collection of ceramics on loan to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, there were The British Museum had some of his collection. But what he wanted in New York City was a personal library to house his books. And that's what he built. And that's what he had told his nephew, Junius, that he needed a personal librarian for. Um, knowing Belle, as, as Junius did, knowing that she was smart, she had you know, very impeccable library skills and kind of pedigree for the time, but she also had been trained in 
Incanubula, which I think is how you pronounce it, which were early printed books, and manuscripts, handwritten, illuminated manuscripts. He thought that she might be a good fit for this role with his uncle. Um, so he arranged an interview for, the, uh, for Belle with JP. And, you know, this is kind of a, the scene, um, which I'll describe to you, is, is kind of a, I think, a good um, description of, of how the historical fiction evolves sort of around the facts um, that we do know. Um, so um, uh, Junius arranges for this meeting. Um, it's in the uh, end of 1905. And, you know, we know sort of the date that it happened. We know that the state, how complete the Morgan Library was that this happened. We know Junius was present during the interview. And we know she got the job. But we don't know exactly what happened during that meeting. And that's kind of where the fiction comes in. Um, you know, we know the personalities, J.P. and Belle. And Victoria and I could kind of envision the scene between them um, using sort of the facts as we knew them as the structure upon which to build the scene. So that's how she landed this not just good job, it was the job of a lifetime. Uh, before we go to another break, uh, maybe describe some of her accomplishments, the, the way she was very creative. Oh, sure. She was ahead of her time in, in some ways, right? Oh, absolutely. She was um, uh, she was incredible in terms of her negotiating skills. So when she came into J.P.'s collection, it was a little bit of a hodgepodge. You know, he had some Gutenberg Bibles, which are really like the preeminent thing you would want in any collection. And he had um, some incredible um, incanubula, but he it was sort of scattershot. He didn't have complete complete collections um, of a particular type. So she organized it, and then she would target particular um, books or manuscripts to, to make the, the collection complete. You know, the goal ultimately was to make the Morgan Library on par with some of the preeminent libraries in Europe. So she would target particular pieces. She would go to these auctions where she was very often the only woman. And she had really creative negotiating tactics. Sometimes she would learn of a particular piece going um, up for auction, and she would contact the seller beforehand and scoop it you know, which was really not done during that time. Um, or she would she would play these very uh, dramatic games in her negotiating tactics and styles. And, of course, she had the unlimited budget of J.P. Morgan. When um, the two of them decided that they wanted something to complete the collection, money was literally no object. And, um, and Belle found a way, whether it was through her shrewd tactics or her deep pockets, um, to really create this unrivaled collection. Yeah, uh, amazing. Um, let's take another break. We'll come back, uh, final segment, with uh, Marie Benedict. Uh, the uh, novel, historical novel, is The Personal Librarian. And the authors are Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. Uh, we're talking about J.P. Morgan's personal librarian who was uh, all her life ha- ha- hid a secret. Uh, she was uh, passing as white. Um, we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Spirit Goat Soap, celebrating summer with a variety of gift sets made with handcrafted soaps, balms, and bath products with options for all skin types, including sensitive skin. Located at 28 Federal Avenue in Logan. Information at spiritgoat.com. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week, we asked some of our favorite food people who they're fans of, the people who inspired them to do what they do. 
We've got Melissa Clark, Patti Hinich, Shauna Siever, all talking about the culinary heroes that changed their lives, and it might just change yours. It's coming up on The Splendid Table from APM. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. On the next Radio Lab, we have here nine, nine babies. We need help. The increasingly complicated business of making a family. Two guys and, and three women. Four countries. Yeah, planes. Three jet planes. Two wait, jet planes. Hundreds two of, of thousands of dollars. And the women behind it all. The women are they are in charge of deciding how they want their life to be, and we don't have to look at them with pity. Coming up at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, New York Times bestselling author Marie Benedict. Uh, she is a co-author, along with Victoria Christopher Murray, of the new book, The Personal Librarian. Uh, it's a historical novel. It tells the story of J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, Belle da Costa Green, uh, who is a black American woman forced to hide her true identity, passes wide in order to have this opportunity to leave a lasting legacy that we've been uh, talking about. Um, so, Marie Benedict, uh, You've talked a bit about this. I wonder if you could expand on to just the, the, the personality. Tell us a bit more about the person, Belle Costa Green. Oh, sure. Um, wow. I mean, she was brilliant. She was bold, which is really important, and I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and she was uh, so hardworking and determined. Um, but she was funny. Um, she was uh, she was so such a, an amazing read of a room, and uh, so the thing about Belle that's I think so fascinating is that you know the way Victoria and I perceive her is that she would have you know as a black woman living in a white world, her mother would have sort of schooled her to be circumspect and demure, not to stand out, but that's standing out is exactly what was needed in her particular society. Um, You know, to be a a, a woman in these circles, she had to be not only smarter than everybody else, she had to be more articulate than everybody else, but she also had to blend in in a way that, that wasn't invisible, but that blended in with the society around her. And so she very quickly realized that she needed to have this sort of, um, distinct personality in the social circles that she traveled. So she became known for her witticisms, for her flirtatious banter, for her brilliant, um, insightful remarks, for her flamboyant dress. Um, it was as if Belle decided that she knew people were going to whisper about the complexion of her skin. They were going to gossip about her background. And so she was going to hide in plain sight and live out loud. And if people were going to talk about her, then let them talk about her bold remarks and her flamboyant hat and distract them from the shade of her skin. Um, And so she became quite the darling of the uh, celebrity set of that time period, which would have been the very wealthy people that we all know, um, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies. But she was also, um, you know, very involved in the artistic community, the actors, the actresses, the writers, um, and the, the bohemian set as well. So she really um, had this very distinct, bold personality. And it was an excellent match for J.P. Morgan. You know, 
brilliant in his own right, but incredibly mercurial. She was able to interact with him in a way that we really wonder whether anyone else ever did. Um, They were extremely close, but she was able to speak her mind to him. Um, They served many kind of roles with each other. They had almost a um, a father-daughter role sometimes. People wondered at other times whether there was sort of a romantic attraction between them. They had um, they had that sort of, uh, they had a mentor-mentee relationship, and yet they were, she was almost like his confidant at times. She would play cards with him, read aloud to him, attend parties with him, and she would negotiate with him and learn from him. It was a very complicated but really important relationship. Um, and, you know, at the, at, towards the end of her life, Belle was asked about the nature of their relationship and whether it was ever romantic. Uh, J.P. Morgan, by the way, was a known philanderer. Many relationships. Um, she said, we tried. And when Victoria and I had to kind of discern the nature of that relationship between these two, because we don't know. There's nothing written that we've been able to find or that we're aware of which really defines it. We decided that it would become undefinable, that it would become a relationship um, in which they each wore many hats and undertook many roles. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that, that paints a, a great picture, hiding in plain sight, right? To be flamboyant. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, you know, when... When you look at photographs of her, um, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, my reaction is, yeah, I can see how she passed, but I could also see how people might be suspicious and and wonder. Did exactly. uh, did, did do we know? Did did people talk about her and wonder? And because uh, that that was a, a danger yeah. always, right? Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and and here's you know again here's what we know and don't know from the historical record. If you ever go back and look at the, there's many profiles, magazine profiles of her from this time period, newspaper articles. Often you'll find a a comment like the exotic Belle de Costa Green, the, um, you know, the the dusky complected Belle de Costa Green. So there was definitely from that and from some letters that, you know, we found from the time period, there, there was definitely speculation. Now, they could have been speculating um, that, you know, maybe she was Mediterranean, which had its own connotations, right? Not necessarily all positive during that time period. Um, So there definitely, we think, in our fictional world, would have been speculation about her. Um, Whether there was ever the connection made between her and her father, we don't think so. Um, that was the one thing that she and her mother and her siblings had to avoid was that tie between the Green family and the Green and Richard T. Greener and his family. Um, and we haven't seen anything that would have linked the two because if that link had been made, it would have been absolutely clear um, to J.P. Morgan and um, the society at that time that, that she actually did come from um, a black family or a black heritage. There is one letter that was surfaced recently um, that was found by one of the researchers at the Morgan that earlier on, um, around the time when um, Bell's parents would have split, um, there was some outreach from a society um, family who did know, not a society family, more like a um, People involved in philanthropy looking to place Belle at a um, at a girls' school and noting her heritage, but 
that was, it wasn't clear if they were the greens or the greeners at that time period. It was a time period when they were transitioning to white and it would have been many years before she worked at Princeton and before she met J.P. Morgan. Um, Victoria and I have often talked about whether J.P. knew um, about her background. Um, I think he, you know, if you look at the photographs, depending on the light, depending on where you stand, you know, she can look a variety of ways. And and he may have heard the gossip as well, have had heard the rumors. Victoria and I decided that in, in our fictional world, he wouldn't have known when he hired her. We don't think he would have hired her if he would have known that she was had a black background, um, that her father was Richard T. Greener. Um, he may have heard the speculation over the years um, as time went on, but by that point, she was one of the closest people to him. Uh, he was utterly dependent on her in so many different ways. And at that point, if he would have known, Victoria and I decided that he would have decided it didn't matter. And if J.P. Morgan told the, presented you to the world as a white person, then the world had to accept you as the white person. And um, so by, you know, at, at that time, if there were rumors at some point that surfaced that he had heard, I think his acceptance of her and his presentation to her as his personal librarian would have had to kind of quash the more overt um, rumors and speculation. We have about three minutes left in the conversation. Uh, I, I want to close with this. Um, I was watching an interview that uh, you and your uh, co-author uh, gave, and uh, mm-hmm. I want to have you respond to something that she said, uh, Victoria Christopher Murray. Uh, she mm-hmm. said, we, sure. wear, we wear a mask, she said. And I, I guess you could apply that to everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody wears a mask. But I think she was applying this directly to African Americans, right? We, we wear a mm-hmm. mask. And, uh, you know, you, you said that uh, Bell de Costa Green uh, sort of uh, hidden plain sight, right? That's a form of a mm-hmm. mask, right? Uh, so I wonder if we could, we could close just a couple of minutes of uh, the, this tightrope, another metaphor that you used. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mm-hmm. That I can only I I can't imagine right that that had to be so mm-hmm. nerve wracking every every day get up and and every wonder day. if is this the day right exactly um, I mean I have to say what you something you just said is so important you can't imagine and, and you know what I can't imagine Victoria helped me understand I still can't really imagine it because in some ways she wears a mask every day and she. In it, trusting me enough to invite her to invite me into her world to see what it's like, at least for just a snippet of it, to be a black person moving through our world, helped me understand a glimpse of what it must have been like to be Belta Costa Green. She and so many other people like her would have had to wear a mask that she constantly had to make sure was affixed, that there was no way that anyone could see behind it to her true self. You know, when she walked that tightrope, walking out the door was one risk. Stepping into a restaurant was another risk. Entering a party was a different kind of risk. Going into the library was another kind of risk. Every single place she went was another opportunity for that mask to be unmasked. And that, you know, the the ramifications of her true identity becoming known is something that we can't really fathom. You know, it's much more than just her losing her job with J.P. Morgan and her position in society. Her family, her mother, her her siblings, and then their families, their white identity was founded upon Belle's white identity. 
if Belle's white identity faltered, then her siblings, who all married white people, had white families, their identities would have faltered. Could they have maintained their jobs? Could they have lived in their communities? Could they have kept their spouses? But more than that, if J.P. Morgan found out that he had been fooled by Belle DaCosta Green, might the ramifications have been much bigger than her losing her job? You know, it's important to remember, and Victoria and I studied this extensively, what was going on in our country during that time period? The lynchings, the, the, the physical violence that was being done. I'm not saying that, that J.P. Morgan necessarily would have done that, but if somebody in the, in the media had found that out, what, what could have happened to Belle? We really don't know. So it was a tight rope on which she was, her unmasking could lead to the, the you know, the, the precarious standing of not just herself, but so many other people who were dependent on her. Um, and, and then, of course, Victoria and I talk about a lot about how in, we, in our Bell's eyes, the sacrifice of passing was only worth it because she was making and creating a legacy that would outlive her and would have lasting impact. Bell also had to worry about what her unmasking would have done to her legacy. And that really at the end of the day is why we think she burned those letters. You know, she made the sacrifice of of living as white, not being herself, wearing a mask, not having a family, only because the legacy of the Morgan Library and what it could do to change our understanding of the history of the printed word and the importance of literature and reading, that had to be worth it. And if people found out who she really was, what would have happened to that legacy? Well, a fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, we'll leave it there. Out of time, it's called the, the Books of the Personal Librarian. The authors are Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray, and we've had Marie Benedict with us. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having having me and having Victoria in, in, in spirit. <laughs> Very good. And thanks, everyone, for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and UPR.org.